welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good afternoon. My name is Hampton Gray, a cardiothoracic surgery resident at the University of Southern California. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Vaughn Starnes, Distinguished Professor and Chairman, Department of Surgery, and Director of the Cardiovascular Thoracic Institute at the University of Southern California and Children's Hospital, Los Angeles, regarding the management and treatment of neonatal Epstein's anomaly. Dr. Starnes pioneered treatment for neonatal Epstein's anomaly with the RV exclusion technique, otherwise known as the Starnes procedure. Good afternoon, Dr. Starnes. Good afternoon, Hampton. So we'll start out with a case scenario. Uh, we have a one-day-old full-term infant that was transferred to the NICU for respiratory distress and desaturation shortly after birth. There's a loud murmur on exam. The kid has a pH of 7.2 with a lactate of 75 on initial blood gas. Physical exam shows decreased capillary refill, mildly cool and cyanotic extremities. Initial chest x-ray shows an enlarged cardiac silhouette. The patient was subsequently intubated, started on prostaglandins and dopamine. An echocardiogram confirms Epstein's anomaly. So with the above uh, scenario outlining um, a baby that was um, born with Epstein's anomaly, uh, could we first just start off and, in your own words, kind of talk about the definition and pathophysiology of uh, Epstein's anomaly? Sure, Hampton. I mean, one of the things that we look at first is actually the plain chest x-ray defines Epstein's uh, more so than any congenital lesion we see. It's usually a wall-to-wall heart. Very few um, congenital lesions present that way. They usually are in extremis. They usually have lactic acidosis. Uh, the first thing we want to do is stabilize the baby. So we uh, obviously intubate, uh, gain control of the respirations, start on PGE to assist in pulmonary blood flow. Because one of the, uh, obviously, the pathophysiology of severe Epstein's is an unguarded tricuspid valve, a poorly functioning RV that's now dilated and really, I think, compressing the LVOT to, conf- to really uh, cause us to have low cardiac output. So one of the things we want to do first is get the baby out of acidosis and see if we can manage the baby through this uh, neonatal uh, period of time. Uh, we will actually try to uh, manage these children for four or five days without operative intervention. But the children that we see with uh, the large uh, cardiac silhouette, I know we're going to talk about in a few moments, where we have a cardiothoracic ratio, say, greater than uh, 0.8 or 0.9, there's an extremely high mortality in that group of babies. And they usually have the very displaced uh, tricuspid valve, very little to no septal leaflet. If you look at the great ormistrate ratio, which I believe is just a reflection of how bad the RV truly is, how much atrialized RV you have, which means how far down into the ventricle is the tricuspid valve displaced. And that whole area is usually atrialized. So if you look at the amount of right atrium and right atrialized ventricle and you put that over functioning uh, RV, LV plus LA, you come up with a ratio. And what we've found, if those ratios great, greater than one, it's pretty reliable predictive of a 50 to 60 percent mortality. Uh, very nice. So the, the clinical presentation of a, of a neonate, as we've described, they're usually an extremis. Um, how does the child or the adult um, usually present um, when you see these kids referred in clinic from a cardiologist standpoint? 
Well, when we looked at our own series about uh, some 86 to 90 patients, um, what we found was about two-thirds of them ended up needing some, some kind of intervention, but a third of them, if you manage them medically, will get better and you can get them extubated. They will have an anti-grade flow through the uh, pulmonary valve and the RV will start uh, to handle the uh, circulation. So not all neonatal Epstein's that present get operated. I'd say probably two-thirds do. Uh, I think the ones that uh, we end up operating on are the ones that we challenge with trying to wean the prostaglandin off, uh, try to wean the dopamine off, try to extubate it. And if that fails, it usually fails by seeing an RV that can't push blood out the pulmonary valve into the, the pulmonary bed, mm -hmm. and they're ductal dependent. Mm -hmm. And that's the child with a very displaced tricuspid valve with a big cardiothoracic ratio, a great Ormond Street ratio greater than one that we end up operating on. Mm -hmm. The child that presents later usually has pretty good valvar function. Uh, they may have TR, but that child may go for four or five years without needing anything done to it. And I think now with the advent of a good tricuspid valve repair technique, the cone procedure, I think the further we can get those children and young adults out, the better we are with that procedure. We have more tissue to work with. In terms of the preoperative imaging, I know we, we spoke about the chest x-ray, but the echocardiogram, is there anything in particular um, that you're looking for um, that might tell you um, in terms of operating sooner or later or what type of operation you might actually need to do? Yeah, we really look for how much displacement we have with the tricuspid valve, where the tricuspid annulus is truly unguarded, and how much uh, functional RV do we have? How much of this ventricle is atrialized? Because it's really, I think, the physiology here is not about the TR per se. I think it's about the RV function. How much quality RV do we actually have? And I think in the severe neonatal uh, Epstein's, we have very little functioning RV. Most of it, it's atrialized. Okay. So we've already discussed the Great Orm Street ratio and the cardiothoracic ratio, as you've previously said. Um, and you kind of spoke about the prostaglandins weaning and staying on the ventilator and trying to wean off the ventilator. Um, other surgical indications for neonatal um, Epstein's or um, if they can get to the childhood or adult phase, when do you kind of decide when to operate? When they're in the childhood or adult phase? Yes, yeah, in yeah. childhood or adult phase. Well, I think we, were, we want to operate at that time if we're having, for example, a child may have a small ASD or an mm -hmm. ASD. Uh, if what we find is that in the adult or the young child, if the RV's not handling that or there's too much TR, we start getting cyanosis. Mm -hmm. And I think as we get cyanosis, we start getting a little bit diminished RV function. And I think regardless of the age, that's when you need to intervene mm -hmm. because what you'll see in most series is that if you operate on a, a, an adult that's got uh, a lot of cyanosis and poor RV function, their outcome is poor. You really need to try to stay ahead of the curve in terms of RV function and right-to-left shunting. Okay. So we'll go back to our case scenario. Um, the child's echo did show Epstein's anomaly at a moderate ASD with right-to-left shunting. There was a large right atrium. There was an Epstein-like tricuspid valve with severe insufficiency. There was a large atrialized RV with a hypoplastic true right ventricle, normal sized pulmonary valve with questionable anti-grade flow, and mild pulmonary valve insufficiency. There was a large PDA with left to right shunting, a great Ormond Street ratio was 1.1, and a cardiothoracic ratio of 0.8.
the child is unable to wean from the ventilator and is requiring inotropic support and has ductal dependent pulmonary blood flow. Um, so as we kind of discussed earlier, um, can we just talk about again surgical planning for a one versus two ventricle repair and the timing of repair since this does have uh, pretty big implications on the rest of the child's life. Right. So I think in this particular case scenario, I would say this child needs to go down a neonatal Epstein's route. Uh, that's what we would do here at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, and we found that with that planned approach, we have 80 to 90 percent survival rates now. Uh, and what the, the plan for the operation should be how to decompress the RV, how to get rid of the tricuspid uh, insufficiency, and coming back to the RV a little bit, in order to decompress the RV, I think you have to fenestrate the patch. Because one of the things that we've learned with this procedure, I did over time, again, it's coming back to the RV function a bit. It's a natrialized ventricle. It has very little capacity to push blood out into a pulmonary outflow tract that's got high pulmonary resistance. So that's the, the problem we had early on when we weren't fenestrating the patch. It couldn't decompress itself. And I think we had septal shifting and poor LV output. So I think the keys of the operation is going in. Uh, the atrium is usually very large, so you want to reduce the size of the atrium. Uh, plan to place a tricuspid valve patch, exclusion patch. And here again, maybe unlike some, I do leave the coronary sinus on the atrial side, not the ventricular side, because again, I'm after trying to decompress the, R, decompress the RV. Once I've done that, particularly in the area of the AV conduction, I, I tend to try to sew down in the ventricle away from the conduction area. Uh, so the patch goes around the coronary sinus into the ventricle and then back up around the, uh, the free wall, uh, the anterior wall of the uh, uh, RV. Once the patch is in place, I usually punch about a, a two, and a, two and a half, three to four millimeter punch hole. Uh, it usually ends up about a four. And then obviously make sure I got a widely patent ASD, close it up. Then we do, uh, while we're reworming, resuscitating a BT shunt. So can you talk a little bit about, uh, since you, you've had a long experience, the, the first couple times you did this operation and then what you've learned over the, the vast uh, experience and many years you've done this operation. Um, if you could go back and do it different, you know, what would you have changed from the initial operation? Yeah, well I, I think, you know, early on when I started doing my first ones, uh, uh, it was like a, a frustration is the creator of innovation, right? And I was having these children, and it was unusual because it's such a very rare lesion. I had two or three in a row present. And, uh, you know, a little foolishly, I thought, well, I'll just handle this like a pulmonary atresia. I'll exclude the RV, and I'll do a BT shunt. And, and conceptually, I thought it was really the tricuspid insufficiency that was the problem, that was causing uh, RV, con uh, I mean, right atrial congestion, liver congestion, renal, uh, venous hypertension, renal failure, I thought that was the whole scenario, and I'm sure it was part of it. But what we learned very quickly is that even if you exclude the RV, there's a lot of blood that gets into the RV from sinusoids, from maybe a small leak in the pulmonary uh, valve. And once that RV got tense and, and uh, uh, dilated, it really did compromise LV function via the septal shifting. 
So then we looked for ways to decompress the uh, RV, and again, we were trying to decompress it to the wrong chamber. We were trying to decompress it to the pulmonary circulation, high resistance circulation. So that was not going to work. So after about four or five of these children, we tumbled on the idea, well, we need to decompress to a low pressure system to get the RV to, to decompress, make sure we had uh, good LV function by having uh, less septal impingement. And it was unfortunately a trial and error how we came to the current operation that we do today that is very successful. Mm -hmm. So going back to the, we're in the operating room, you were kind of describing the technique. Um, do you usually do bicable cannulation on these infants, or is there any time when you would have to initially do um, single venous cannulation and convert to bi bicable? Well, it, it really depends on how much uh, atrial enlargement you have. Sometimes it's wall-to-wall -wall heart. You can't really access the uh, cavy without making the child very unstable. So sometimes we do go on with a single atrial appendage cannula uh, and get the heart decompressed and then start, once we've got that, uh, switching out to bicable cannulation. We feel like that that's a safe way to do it. You usually can start out and have a Y with a right angle cannula as part of the circulation and a straight to go into the atrial appendage. Once you're on bypass, put your uh, right angle up into the SVC and then switch out the one you had in the appendage down to the IVC and then you're on safely. Mm -hmm. uh, always cardioplege, stop the heart because I think you have to have precise suturing because one of the things that can happen is that it's such a dilated, thinned out RV and you're trying to exclude the uh, tricuspid annulus, you can actually pick up the right coronary in your suture line. So you've got to be very careful you don't displace the AV groove or get into the right coronary artery while you're doing this. So I think it's important to stop the heart, get the heart cold, protect it, uh, put your patch in, punch a hole, uh, do a uh, RV pla uh, right atrial plasty, uh, and then uh, Obviously, remove the clamp, go back on, and uh, start rewarming as you do your BT shunt. Mm -hmm. Are there any um, pitfalls or complications that stick out to you over the years that you could um, briefly talk about um, that maybe have happened in the past or that you are um, you know, thoughtful of during the operation? Well, one of the things we had recently, uh, one of my partners did uh, one of these procedures, and there was a, a muscular VSD that we didn't know about. And, uh, and postoperatively, we had a very dilated RV, and we couldn't decompress, and the child continued to be in low output because of this RV distension. So we literally had to take the child back and close the VSD before we got uh, clinical improvement. So I think you have to be sure you don't have a uh, small VSD somewhere in the uh, ventricular septum that can, uh, again, lead to a poor uh, decompression of the RV. Again, I spoke about you can have right coronary injuries pretty easily. I think you've got to watch for that. And I think you have to watch uh, and avoid AV nodal injury uh, conduction, conduction problems because uh, you really do need a sinus rhythm mechanism, I think, to have a good clinical outcome. Mm -hmm. and then one more question about the operative technique. Um, how important is the size of the punch hole in the patch, and how important is the punch hole just in general for the patch? Well, I think the, uh, the punch hole is extremely important. I, I don't think you can get a very successful uh, outcome by having it a non-fenestrated patch. 
the actual size I don't think is that important. I usually put a four because uh, you know it really allows decompression quite well and really it doesn't allow a lot of blood to get into the ventricles. That's by you know basically uh, venous pressure going in and what little RV uh, function you have it can push that out pretty easily. So I think that's important the size but I think it's important to also include the tricuspid animals. You might say, well, why include it at all? Uh, I think you just got to get rid of that tricuspid insufficiency because of the venous hypertension that otherwise occurs. So in terms of the post-operative management in these kids, um, can you just discuss some of the routines, things you do, um, whether you close the chest, open the chest, and then how these um, kids uh, do post-operatively and, and how much inotropic support they use or require, and, uh, et cetera? Uh, we have a pretty standard approach to that. Uh, we don't close the chest in the operating room. We usually leave the chest open for probably 24 or 48 hours. Uh, we do uh, support the pulmonary circulation initially with some nitric oxide because sometimes the pulmonary vasculature is quite small in these epstenoid children uh, and uh, the nitric really does help us. Uh, so over the period of time of the next, next two to three days we start weaning the nitric and start weaning the ventilatory support. Uh, inotropic support, we usually do come out on uh, some uh, low-dose epinephrine and dopamine. And uh, if the baby tolerates it after 24 hours, we start adding in some milleron to try to, to decrease the peripheral vascular resistance and, and aid in also pulmonary vasodilation. Uh, uh, I would say those are sort of the key things that we look to do. We mo monitor, obviously, the lactate levels pretty carefully to make sure we, we have good uh, perfusion. So we'll go back to our case scenario again. So this patient um, underwent the STARS procedure, um, was on inotropic support postoperatively, chest was closed on postoperative day two, ventilator was weaned and extubated by postoperative day five, and then the patient was uh, weaned from inotropes and went to the floor on postoperative day seven, and by postoperative day 14 was home on full feeds. So just in terms of the long-term postoperative care, um, can you just briefly discuss kind of the changes that happen in the cardiac physiology and function after the after this operation? Yeah, you know, what we usually see is, is number one, we obviously at this point are going down a single ventricle route. And the number one, the, the GOS ratio, we've uh, documented very uh, well that it usually goes from almost 1 or 1.1 down to about 0 0.5, 0 0.6 by the time that we consider doing the Glenn, usually at about six to nine months of age. And at that point in time, we've got a brisk ventricular function, LV function that is, and they make a very good uh, Glenn and later a great Fontan candidate. Mm. What do you normally tell the parents in terms of the morbidity, mortality, and survival um, when they undertake um, the Starnes procedure, initially preoperatively and then after um, in terms of um, in-hospital mortality and then if they were able to actually survive until discharge, um, if there's any difference um, until they make it to their uh, Glen. Well, I think the biggest risk is the first stage because that's when the baby's most unstable. We're changing the physiology entirely during that period of time. And I tell the parents we got a 10 to 20% mortality rate during that period of time. Uh, our survival rate is much better than that, but I think it's fair to tell the parents uh, just because you don't know going in to how this baby is going to behave. You don't know how much uh, uh, dysfunctional RV you've got. You don't really know how good the pulmonary arteries are, for example, because you really haven't imaged them. 
So I, I think it's fair to say that you give them an operative mortality, which includes hospital mortality, of 10 to 20 percent. I think once you get them out two to three months, uh, and they're at sort of what we call an interstage between the, the shunted physiology and the bidirectional glen, uh, I, I think once we get to the glen stage, I think their mortality goes way down. And I think they, they're an excellent uh, Glenn and, and Fontan candidate at that time because they've got LV function. Mm -hmm. They're not like a hypoplast. They have LV function. And their mortality during those periods of time, particularly Glenn and Fontan, should be no more than 1% one, 1 or so. Well, Dr. Starnes, I want to thank you for um, having this discussion. And it certainly has been a pleasure. And as always, we thank you for your um, contribution to the field, and especially in the field and um, uh, Neil Epstein's. Hampton, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.